Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. A few years back, Doreen Dodgen McGee started to get worried. I began noticing about five years ago this change in people uh, wanting not so much to talk about the spaces where they were spending time kind of in the digital swimming pool or landscape, and instead almost every conversation turning very quickly from the digital to the very personal dynamics of feeling constantly distracted. Dodgen McGee is a psychologist in Oregon, and the distraction, strangely, was accompanied by another emotion. Kind of ambient loneliness that, that began to invade every conversation I was having. And it was, it was profound. So people were busy all the time. They were eager to banish boredom from their lives. But despite how busy they were, they felt terrible and lonely. At that time, five years ago, teenagers were already spending close to eight hours a day on average in front of screens. For adults, the number was about 10 hours. These statistics weren't unknown, but their consequences were. We are all in some ways lab rats right now. By the way, teenagers now spend nine hours a day on screens rather than eight, and adults spend more than 11, which is to say most of the time we're awake, we're staring at a screen. The notion that we're all lab rats is not a super comforting thought, but it has made Dodge and McGee try to understand the impact of what we're doing on our brains. Are changes that we're experiencing permanent or fleeting? How could people feel lonely when they've got so many online connections? Dodge and McGee says, as this massive experiment, which after all is still pretty new, Steve Jobs only introduced the iPhone in 2007, as it rumbles along and new research trickles in, she sees concerning signs. One is, in a country that's already polarized, the rich seem to be dialing back on the amount of time that their kids spend on screens. Private schools that boast about not using technology are gaining traction. Meanwhile, tech companies are amping up their efforts to help us get rid of boredom, whether that's a good thing or not like streaming services. Now you don't have to watch the credits or watch the opening credits. You can just simply pass through those. Or there's never an end to many web pages anymore, which means people sink far more time into it than they would if, you know, just a, a footer came up that said, okay, this website is, you know, you've gotten the information you need here. Dodge and McGee notes that when she thinks about where we're headed, she considers where we've been and our eternal optimism about change. Um, I got a little bit nostalgic early on about, the, you know, past times and how much better they were. And I, I started thinking about things like uh, old Life magazines, which every ad in a Life magazine from the late 50s, early 60s is either for a convenience food, claiming that it is healthier for us than a, you know, so a glass of tang is healthier for us than an orange. Right. Or anything cooked in Wesson oil is more healthful. <laughs> um, or for cigarettes, you know, with, with doctors suggesting certain brands, you know, will help you with throat scratch. And I began thinking thinking about the fact that we in the West tend not to be great at moderation. And so things that are meant to be kind of side dishes, things like those convenience foods, quickly became main dishes. And then 15 to 20 years later, we see the incidence of, you know, hypertension, high cholesterol, obesity increase massively. And we still can't quite catch up. And I, in some ways, feel that that's a 
a very likely analogy of what's happening with tech, that the shiny claims of technology are so easy to grab onto and we have such a propensity to do that at high amounts of investment. Um, and that in and even now, the things that I talked about 15 or 20 years ago, I feel like I'm hearing from people and seeing anecdotally, uh, consistently with people that I meet with. Um, and I wonder how long it will take us to, uh, to recover. And I do think that there are some things that might not change back. We might not see an increase again in an ability to focus. This may be a change that we now see that there's, you know, less wiring in the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that's responsible for attuned communication, focusing skills, um, being able to start and stop behaviors, so kind of self-regulation. You talked about um, our brains potentially changing in ways that where they don't change back. I think of like when you say that, I think of, you know, that people probably had much greater capacity for memorization before the written word came around. And then, well, they could outsource that to books. Like, why remember a super long story? You can just write it down. You can just read it. Um, uh, I wonder what research is showing us about um, how our brains are changing? Do we? What do we know about that? That's a great question. So part of the tricky thing right now is that peer-reviewed research that is well-constructed takes so much longer to come to the public awareness than what the claims that technology can make. You know, they can come immediately via advertising and, and data that is collected. But one thing that we know absolutely beyond the shadow of a doubt is that the brain wires together where it fires together, meaning that what we expose the brain to creates electrical circuitry within the brain that makes it proficient at managing the situations we expose it to. And right now, we are exposing the brain repeatedly to stimulation that lasts, you know, maybe two to three seconds, and then we're on to the next thing. And we, in my talks, I show, you know, an old um, introduction to Sesame Street, where each visual shot is about 10 to 13 seconds. And then I show one from the 80s, where the shots are now two to five seconds. And now the, the opening sequence is a set of images that is constantly changing and morphing and moving on the screen. So there's never a sustained shot. This means that we're exposing our brains to constantly moving stimulation, meaning, you know, neurologists talk about a concept of neurological pruning, meaning if you don't stimulate certain regions of the brain, the wiring, the, the circuitry in that region gets pruned off. And so what I think, what some studies are now showing and what what also then just makes sense if you look at the the totality of neurological research is that if we aren't exposing the brain literally to opportunities for boredom for again awkwardness that we literally don't wire the brain to feel proficient at managing those situations. And we know as psychologists that people tend to avoid situations they don't feel proficient at. Um, and so so there is this chance that we will be very much short-circuiting a part of the brain that scientists and, and psychologists and educators have come to believe is very important for things like focus and delay of gratification, for emotional and physiological uh, regulation. And that is a huge concern to me. Let's talk about this issue of boredom. Um, and I think a lot of people feel, 
I feel it sometimes myself. Like if I'm on a line at the post office or whatever, and or on a plane or whatever it is, and it's so nice that you can just pull out your phone and read something when, you know, like 15 years ago, you would have just been stranded, bored, looking at the sky. Like, who knows what you could have done if you if you brought a newspaper, or a book with you. Great. But if you didn't didn't, you know, weren't forward thinking enough to do that, you were just bored for a really long time. Why is it a, a, a bad thing that we don't have to be bored? I really have come to believe that if if I could somehow empower the world to be able to be comfortable being inconvenienced, uncomfortable, bored, and awkward, that we would all be a lot more content in our skin. So I think when we do rely on these tiny supercomputers in our pockets to entertain us, to educate us, in some ways to think for us, you know, we don't wrestle with information in the same way we used to because we can have easy kind of quote unquote answers immediately by Googling things. If we if we are willing to come back into ourselves and find out that actually I can develop my imagination by sitting in line at the DMV and looking around and telling myself stories about the people I am sitting here with, or I can take out my little journal and write a haiku as I stand in line at the grocery store, <laughs> or just do one in my mind. I think at the end of the day, feeling as though we are capable and competent of functioning in and of ourselves actually creates a sense of contentment that is hard to find anymore when we are feeling like the bar is set that we have to be constantly in touch on top of all things at all times, have all the information that we need to get. And I think that really robs us from what I call the development of this internal locus of control. And what what I find when I look at the literature is that individuals who, who function from this sense of I can entertain myself if I need to. I can soothe myself if I feel distressed. You know, if I forgot my phone and I feel distressed, I'm capable of bringing myself down. I'm capable of finding my way to a place without Google Maps. Um, That when at the end of the day we know we can do these things in and of ourselves, we tend to feel kind of a greater sense of resilience. We feel a greater sense of um, kind of capability in and of ourselves. And we also, I am finding the more I'm teaching and talking with people about how to create the sense of internal locus of control, we feel more grounded. It's interesting you talk about kind of like this outsourcing, like, well, I'm bored, but but I can find um, happiness or like a, a certain amount of um, just like, as you say, soothing. You know, there's a soothing nature of my phone to like I can take it out and finally I can feel like I'm not bored. Another thing that that you've written about is uh, something I do all the time with my phone, which is I don't know an answer to something. It, it could be anything from like, who was that actress in that thing? Or it could be, you know, when did that thing happen? I can't remember like in history when that thing exactly happened. And one of the really nice things is like you can go look it up on Wikipedia. So instead of kind of making a guess and being wrong or whatever, um, you you find the answer out. And you say like, in some ways, there's some downsides to always doing that. I do think there is. One of them is just that we don't develop this kind of critical thinking ability 
to think through and to figure out how to solve problems in complex ways. So I think there's that. I think there's also the sense that we don't ever have to wait anymore. And I do believe there are important things that develop when we have to wait. Uh, tolerance for discomfort, tolerance for, again, that the thing that develops grit in us, which is an ability to search for information, an ability to maybe um, guess incorrectly and then take feedback that it, that would correct us. Um, I think just small tasks like this, and that's what I love about getting to do the work I do, is if a person can just create even one out of 10 opportunities to do that when a question comes to their mind, I think there's great benefit to us neurologically, to us interpersonally, and to us intrapersonally. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Doreen Dodgen-McGee. She's a psychologist. She's the author of Deviced, Balancing Life and Technology in a Digital World. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of the, the rising science of this and research and, and what we see. Uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from a Wall Street Journal piece um, from August of 2019. Um, and it's... Uh, about the work of a psychologist, Mary Pfeiffer, um, who studies adolescents. So here it is. Young Americans have become unwitting guinea pigs in today's huge unplanned experiment with social media, and teenage girls are bearing much of the brunt. In conversation after conversation, adolescent girls describe themselves as particularly vulnerable to the banes of our increasingly digital culture. With many of them struggling to manage the constant connectedness of social media, their rising levels of anxiety, and the intense emotions that have always been central to adolescence. Doreen, we've seen some findings recently in the scientific literature that girls particularly seem to internalize some of the effects of technology more than boys. What, like, what is happening? What do you see happening? So recently, uh, research out of the University of Pennsylvania has come out that is very different than some of the research in the past showing that young adults and late adolescent, especially young women, who use high levels of social media, not only show a correlative uh, relationship between their use and their levels of anxiety, depression, and fear of missing out, but that there also appears to be a causal effect that actually engagement in those platforms can cause, especially a fear of missing out and agitation. And this definitely rings true to the experience that I have heard from many people. I find that the expectations for both kind of um, personal excellence have really increased for um, all all people, regardless of gender, but, th but that, yes, young women do seem particularly vulnerable to, to a heightened awareness. I, I think of it as this kind of ambient sense of there's constantly something going on that I'm either not a part of or not measuring up to. And I hear that a lot. And I also hear from those people that then when they learn to separate from their devices for even small amounts of time and are able to kind of um, comfort themselves and find a sense of satisfaction in being just with themselves, they actually feel huge relief. It's uncomfortable, but they feel huge relief. And I find similar dynamics with individuals, both men and women, who spend a lot of time in the gaming realm especially if they're gaming in platforms where there's a lot of violence and it creates kind of a sense of this ambient sense of relational aggression that exists within them and they kind of hear themselves in their own mind talking in maybe snarky or sarcastic or belittling ways and that when they create the space for being calm, 
with themselves outside of the um, digital domain, that they begin to hear themselves soften in the way that they think about the rest of the world or um, the relationships with people right around them. And both of those dynamics hold true across the board in my work. Hmm. You know, we talked before about the idea of like when you don't know an answer, picking up your phone to get the answer. Um, and one of the things that Mary Pfeiffer found, this psychologist um, uh, who wrote about her findings in The Wall Street Journal, is that because people have phones all the time, very often instead of making decisions themselves, they'll call somebody, like a parent, whoever. And which I mean, which in some ways is good. Maybe they're asking for advice and maybe getting perspective that they don't have internally. But I wonder if there's also a downside to that, that like you're never really required to think it through and be like, here's an executive decision. This is what I'm going to do. I, I completely agree with that. And I think about, so I've, one of the things that happened for me when I began talking about this more widely and as I was working on the book is I came up with a kind of an assessment tool because people were asking about the very question that you're asking about is what is the effect of constantly referring out to others rather than thinking about things in the self. And I have come to believe very firmly <laughs> that if we all could um, do things like risk food poisoning every once in a while, instead of reading five Yelp reviews for a restaurant, <laughs> just going into the restaurant <laughs> that looks or, or smells good, um, that, that there's something in the sense of spontaneity um, that, that also, again, develops this kind of um, oh, wild, rich, sort of dangerous um, opportunity to take small risks that will grow us as people and grow our own comfort in our own skin. And that our devotion to kind of having quick answers or the right answer really does a disservice to us. And I really look to the work of Carol Dweck in this area where she talks about most of American educational systems um, fall into what she calls a fixed mindset model, you know, where we we want to hit a certain uh, point, you know, we hit a certain income, and then we feel like we've arrived. We hit a certain title, and we feel like we're successful. We, you know, have the right answer, and we feel accomplished. Instead, we miss a lot by not having what she calls a growth mindset model, which is by being willing to again tolerate the awkward, tolerate small failures, in order to actually become more kind of gritty and resilient and competent and confident in our own skin. And that's, you know, I, I feel like. I would I wish I wish with everything in me that I could invite the entire world to a big huge boredom awkward party. Sounds like a great party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one had access to, you know, answers or plan curating an experience and planning it all ahead, but where we kind of all had to bump up against each other and find out what what weird, fun skill you can teach me and what interesting thing I know about that I can teach you and and where we all kind of find out that we can actually tolerate not having the right answer or or struggling to figure it out for a while. Um, and we would feel, again, I think we would we would end up feeling kind of much more calm and and also much more connected both to ourselves and others. Doreen Dodgen McGee is a psychologist. She's the author of Deviced Balancing Life and Technology in a Digital World. Doreen, thank you very much. Thank you so, so much for having me. Everyone gets into a dolding. If they don't get a chance to change the scene, I could not be weary. 
Life could not be dreamier if I lived in Siberia. We've got more about the topics that we talked about in this segment on our website, from Mary Pfeiffer's work with teenage girls to signs that the rich are scaling back on how much their children use technology. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Eleanor Ho. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.